talk a little bit for a while about the questions they've got. So, uh, uh, this first one here is on remarriage. Where is it starting for someone? It's not the idea of someone who puts another one away. It's the one who is put away. That's what your question concerns you. Well, in general, is that we see a lot of verses through our studies. We see a lot of verses that they get the exception and we can't remarry. We see that in the exceptions for divorce, but not necessarily in scripture that say that you can remarry. What you're wondering is, is there any scriptural part to remarry? Other, well, well, other than those who die. I've lost a mate yeah. through that. That's, that's what I've got. But okay. Not just the person who's away, but just general. Okay. Yeah, because uh, if it is uh, remarried, if you can't remarry, then the conditions would not contradict any of the, like you don't just remarry for a, a person who's divorced for the wrong reason or whatever. But it's remarried. Yeah. 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 Uh, one of the things that I uh, ask people to talk about is uh, uh, the idea of a person who is put away. <laughs> is there any circumstance under which a put away person can get married again? Uh, but this is not exactly that same question. This is uh, a matter of if there is any authority, whatever. It's not just for someone who's been put away, but someone who puts away. Now, would that be part of the question, too? Would there be any authority for remarriage there on the part of one who puts the other one away? No question there. We don't, we don't have any examples of a person who has been divorced and remarried. Okay. I, I, I'm not... I'm not All right. Okay. And that there's, no, there's no sense that it's not mentioned that you can. The exception that it talks about is, is from what I So, the, the standpoint we're looking at is from the standpoint of the one who is put away. Well, remarried. Uh, yeah, uh, the one who puts away. I'm willing to know. Is that part of your question? No, because the one who is put away, uh, I, I, I'm, I obviously cannot. Now, if anybody divorces, puts away another spouse, that is clear. But the one who is put away, mm-hmm. or the master of the king says accept. Uh, he says you can divorce, but I don't see the inference that you can remarry. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I'm saying. I don't see that the scripture that says that anyone who either has been put away can remarry. I don't, I don't see that. They talk about you can divorce. That's clear. Mm-hmm. There's a huge the authority that divorce. Where is the authority that that individual can, under whatever circumstances, remarry? Yeah. The, the divorce part is clear. It's the remarriage part that I'm really clear Well, we've got two two passages I think it'd be good to keep before us in, in considering the matter. And, of course, that's Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19, yeah. verse 9. And uh, in verse uh, Matthew 5.32, everyone that puts away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, makes her an adulteress. All right, so there you're looking at the standpoint of the one doing the put away, doing the putting away. And the emphasis in 532 is that if he puts her away without the cause of fornication, then he is responsible for making her an adulteress. And then the last part of 532, whoever marries her when she's put away commits adultery. So when it's not for the cause of fornication, he puts her away, makes her in her notice. She's therefore in the position of whoever marries her is going to be guilty of adultery. But it doesn't address the condition of the one that does put him away here. All it's, all it's doing on his part is say he makes her in adulteress. So it's blaming him with the spiritual condition he's going to put her in. Now, if she is guilty of adultery, the thing that has changed is that when he puts her away, it won't be him making her an adulteress. It is nor is it changing the fact whoever marries her, who is put away for the cause of fornication, he's going to be marrying a fornicator. doesn't change that either. The only thing that changes is the fault of the one putting away. And it won't be his fault. Now when you go to Matthew 19.9, 9, 
then it addresses the fault of the one who is doing the putting away from the standpoint of what will he do, what will he be. And so it says, whoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. So that when you don't have the exception, then both the one who's putting away and the one that marries him, plus the one who is put away, plus the one that marries her, you got four in adultery there. Now when you have the exception clause, you apply that, then it would mean that he puts away his wife and marries another, and he does not commit adultery. It's the effect of the exception clause that would show he could get married again. So but, you, okay, so you you see that we have that, that there's authority there for a person to remarry when he puts away his wife for fornication. So the exception here. See, this is where the, this is where we get. I'm not comfortable. I guess unless I don't see it, you get the authority that from the exception. If you take the exception out, and you have to say, well, the opposite way, then we can remarry. Yeah, if you leave the exception clause out, then it says, whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another commits adultery. Now, if you don't have the exception clause, then that means that everybody who puts away his wife for whatever reason, and if he marries somebody else, he's going to be guilty of adultery. Yeah. But if he somebody else, so we, are, we have to extrapolate here that marriage is, remarriage is, is uh, is that all right? Is that all right? Yes, it's the end of marriage. Anybody yeah. Yeah. Okay, look. Look at it like this now. Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now, if you want to make that the general statement, the only way you can do it is leave out and not consider that exception clause. And that is the general rule. Yes, that is the general rule. But if you put the exception clause in, the exception clause either affects that and changes that, or there's no point in having an exception clause. So what would it change if the general statement is whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery? So what would what there be to change about that? Well, what about the guy who puts away his wife because she's a fornicator and he marries another, then he does not commit adultery? So to me, it's the implication of whether the exception clause is in it or not. Now, Bobby, you, you go ahead and make the comments that you have on that. How well, do you look at that? I don't approach it basically the same way. I always leave the exception clause out. Right. Or exception phrase out. Mm-hmm. And uh, just show up the general Because uh, when you put it in, it's obvious that it changes. Otherwise, it serves no purpose. There's no point to having it there.
you put away far artificial today. Mm-hmm. That's not even one of the recognized causes. So well, yeah, 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 that looser, since the looser divorce laws have come into effect over the last 35 years. Well, let me uh, let me tell you all something that you you uh, need to be aware of. Now he is not uh, he's not broadcasting it. He doesn't go around trying to teach it, but he does believe it. And I know that it is a subject that has been discussed some at Jordan. And that is the idea that the Bible gives the man the right to divorce the woman, but it does not give the woman the right to divorce a husband who is unfaithful to her or whatever. I've heard that. Yeah. I had a person write me a letter several years ago someplace out in the Northwest. Okay. Wondering about that. Well, said, whoever. Well, and the thing is, you know, the most immediate passage that comes to my mind on that is Mark ten. So, um, so when I was confronted with that, it was not only it was a Chad Comfort uh, and also uh, Gert Van Zandt. Oh, uh, they were really discussing. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying they're gung-ho teaching this, but this is something they're really struggling with and studying, and they're, uh, in the discussions I've had, the, the, what they're really contending for is the idea that the woman can't do it. And preacher at Jordan. He was not there, but I And I'm not trying to spur it this about it, but I'm there because you are a Canadian preacher. Yes, I want you to know about it, and I want you to think about it. And their idea is because uh, the woman was, uh, the, the, the law, it was addressed to the, uh, it was addressed to the man. Well, to me, Mark 10 it shows it could be either way. Whoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery, yet she herself shall put away her husband and marry another, she commits adultery. But they they just try they they, they just ignore that. I never I, I could not perceive the force of any argument they were making that really dealt with that. They were pretty well saying, Yeah, but under the law she was not given the right. Well I, my own view of Mark here is there are several places where Mark inserts a comment, like uh, Mark 7, that this he said, making all meats clean, where Mark is making a comment about something that Jesus said, because Mark probably wrote this at Rome in the company of Peter. Therefore, it would have been written more for a Gentile reader than Matthew, which would have been a Jewish reader. So Mark is putting it deliberately in terms that would show that the, the statement of Jesus here would apply either way because among the Romans, among the Gentiles, there were cases where the woman would divorce the husband. So it's not a matter just that we have to do it like the law of Moses said to do it. And uh, so that's, that's something that uh, you, know, you, need to, you need to know about. Yeah, in this talk verse, uh, he states it from the woman's perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas it is from the man in verse 11. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I can be up very clearly with the same uh, Right, right. And 
I've, I've listened to the, the on the website of the uh, one of some of the uh, some of the classes that you put on there, mm-hmm. and it I just it was just new stuff for me, like talking about holy convocation and convocation, and yeah, yeah. make yeah. sense on that. So we've got a little bit about that. But one of the problems I have is uh, when it says that the women are to keep silent when the church gets together. Mm-hmm. I studied in Corinthians where you go in chapter 12, chapter 13, and, and chapter 14, where you have the whole Chikari's What is the difference? You know, we have a class, and then they... But the whole church is there in the Bible. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're kind of confused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We just can't put it together. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes it harder. Yeah, it does. Okay. And these women don't have a husband going to them. Right. Right. They're also hard. You understand? Yeah. And the smaller the group, usually the more magnified the problem will be in a way because the the line between formal and informal is so blurred in that case. So it does make it difficult. Well, in my judgment, a congregation can design design an assembly for the purpose of Bible study. Class, and uh, I realized that might make it seem that that the whole church is there in one place, and of course, actually they are. (laughs) But uh, that's really not the kind of assembly that uh, First Corinthians 14 is describing, as I understand it. In First Corinthians 14, he's describing. uh, an assembly or a gathering in which uh, various kinds of force have the privilege as long as they observe the principle that he sets forth there, the restrictions uh, of getting up and speaking. But it was not a back and forth, mm-hmm. a give and take kind of situation where they get together and talk about what does this passage mean uh, or uh, cover a certain book of the Bible. Uh, and so in a case like that, in 1 Corinthians 14, where the congregation said, well, now this is, this is the time when, uh, when various ones are assigned, have their role, whereas over here in this other time, in the class that you're talking about, I think the women could. I think they'd have to be careful not to uh, step out of bounds. I think they'd have to be careful not to... Uh, even by their attitude or words, manifest that they're trying to leave the situation. But I think they could ask a question mm-hmm. or answer a question, answer a question like that might be put to them. Uh, my wife does not feel comfortable doing that mm-hmm. in a congregation like that, mm-hmm. where uh, all of the church is there uh, for a Bible class. She does not feel comfortable doing that. Do you think they could? If they had met to be a class, to be in a study uh, group, I think they could. I think they could, but I can understand why they feel that way. Yeah. But one of the points I was making is that any, any group of people have the right and do determine what the nature of that group is. It doesn't automatically assume a nature. It is the group of saints that makes it have a nature. If you have a small group of saints, they might say, uh, uh, Saturday night, let's meet down at the gym and we'll play uh, basketball. Okay, they meet down and they, and they play basketball. It's the same group. But there, they have determined themselves that what they're coming together for is to play basketball. Now, if there are some women in that group, they want to play basketball, just kind of an informal game, and the men come together, uh, they have determined they're going to play basketball. The group has the right and the power to determine what the purpose of their coming together is, what the nature of it is. Now, that same group of people, and meet on Sunday morning with the consciousness that we are meeting at the church of the Lord in this place. Now that gives it a totally different nature. And it doesn't have to be, in other words, there's no 
there's no ceremonial difference that would it be the same people that look the same way and everything like that, but it's their purpose that makes the difference. And you take in all the different uses of the word uh, church or ecclesia in the Testament, it is the purpose of the group uh, that makes it whatever kind of group it is. They determine whether it's a legislative assembly, uh, they, the word ecclesia is used for that, but it's the purpose the group gives it that then determines what it is. So, but having said that, we, we are gathering here. For example, we gather there, uh, we don't do that, we have different classes before. Mm-hmm. Like we only have, when the whole church comes together on Sunday morning, it's for worship service. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have enough adults to class and have an adult class. Right, right, so, right. So we, we lead all together, so there's no problem there. Mm-hmm. But on the Thursday night, the whole church comes together and it's for study of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. That's what gets complicated. Yeah. So, how do we know that that's different? It's the purpose you assign to it. That's the only thing that I could say to you. It's the purpose you assign to it. Whether it's big or little doesn't make any difference. So when your uh, stated purpose, and everybody understands this is the purpose, we have come together for a study, not a when the whole church has come together, which in 1 Corinthians 14 means a time when a prophet's going to stand up and address the group or a throne speaker is going to stand up and address the group. See, it's not then you're not having an informal uh, back-and-forth exchange going on. And, and that's the kind of, we were heading toward that direction. And mm-hmm. two examples that I have in my mind is first Lydia, mm-hmm. where she taught, and she was taught, and she, there was discussion there, because mm-hmm. it says that she insisted mm-hmm. on them coming, mm-hmm. so there had to be some talk about mm-hmm. them. And her, her household came, and mm-hmm. so she enough the fact then uh, implied that there were some questions asked. And when they got, yes, so there is a, such a situation where we can get together and study the Bible with women where they can ask mm-hmm. uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Mm-hmm. Aquila. Mm-hmm. So where they both went to Paul uh, mm-hmm. and uh, taught him more accurately, so there's, there's examples there. So there has to be some kind of difference. And I didn't, I didn't believe that the only difference it should have made were was where we were meeting. Mm-hmm. That did not no. make no sense to me. No. But it's just purpose of the assembly. So go ahead, Bob. Think of it this way, too. This is just a little bit different way of getting at it. And actually, consider the situation there of the Ethiopian treasure. As he was riding along, Philip, of course, was teaching him. He said, of whom is the prophet speaking this, of himself or some other one? Well, there was a give and take. There was a back and forth. Now, let's say that had been a woman. Well, let's say his wife had been there. Uh, of course, they're not Christians at the time, but still, uh, would she have been privileged to ask the same question that her husband would? That if she really had a question about it, was pondering it? I believe she could have asked that question in order to ask her thing the truth. That's just part of the giving and take of Bible stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, Make them Christians and put them in a church building. Philip's still there teaching for a few more days before he goes home. Does the woman automatically become disenfranchised? That is, can she not ask that question that she needs to ask in a period of Bible study just because she now is a Christian? Well, the whole church has come together. What it, I, and the only other thing that comes to my mind is it says that the women should be silent. And if they have a question, let them ask their husbands at home. Because I that that particular kind of gap that First Corinthians 14 is talking about. And that would not be the kind of gathering where they were sitting with uh, Philip, we'll say. Uh, Philip didn't go on. He didn't go on. Go on. Uh, but he stayed there with him a few days to teach them some more. Um, 
if we're not careful, we'll give the alien center the privilege that the saint no longer has. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yes. So he just okay. said you have to study out there, put it in a church building in a classroom. <laughs>
So the only thing that could explain the difference would be the purpose they had in assembling. Okay. And so when the word is used then, uh, uh, like, uh, let's see, like in Acts 20.28, feed the church of the Lord, and the elders of the church, uh, verse, like verse 17 of Acts 20, Acts 20 and verse 17, there you have the elders of the church, which would be a local congregation. So in the use of the word assembly, the thing that would determine the difference between the group is the purpose they have in coming together. That's the only thing they could be. Because it's not the word itself. The same word is used in all three of those senses in, in that closer context. Therefore, by implication, it would have to be the purpose of the assembly. There's nothing else that would distinguish between that mob and uh, the legislators that come together. So it's the purpose they have. In Acts 7, 38, Stephen's yes. referring to Israel, he talks about the church or the congregation. I think that's that was the Right. I believe it is. The church in the wilderness. Referring to God, but it has to be And that, of course, had no reference. Uh, certainly didn't have reference to uh, the church belonging to Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it didn't even have reference to they're all necessarily gathering one geographical location, but just the group of those in the wilderness who were God's people. So there might have been times when they did stop and camp and all be gathered in one place. So when they were on the move, they were still in the church in the wilderness. Now, you see, you could say, <clears throat> you use the ideas like in verse 39 of chapter 19, a regular assembly. Well, if you have a regular assembly, it sounds like you can have one that's not regular. <laughs> you could have an irregular one, such as that multitude, that mob that came together. I have lawful, so you could have the unlawful. Yeah. Well, in fact, in verse 40, it says, I have to give account for this disorderly gathering. Mm-hmm. I suspect that that word, I don't know if the word gathering there is the same as assembly. Right, that's in verse 40. 40, yes. Yeah. What you're saying there? It says the day, this day's riot. Oh, okay. It may not be a word for gathering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Because the American standards usually pretty That's right. And tell you what that original word would be. So again, it is the, the purpose in coming together. So using the word in a generic sense, uh, you all could have an ecclesia to play basketball. Just like this ecclesia was a mob. Mm-hmm. But if you if you have the ecclesia to worship God, then that's going to be something different. And your purpose in coming together is what's going to make the difference. Now, the other point to that, and I just want to mention this, I'm sure you probably heard this, but it didn't make sense to me either. I have heard of the defense say, well, if there's one member of the church missing them, well, then does that mean that if when we worship together and we have Lord's Supper, that if there's one person who leaves, can do that? Or? No. See, it didn't make sense. No, no, that's right. Because still, the purpose of those who have assembled mm-hmm. is to come together for the worship of that God. That, that, that's what I was missing. That's right. That's good. And you, you can never assure that everybody's going to be yeah. there. And that, that, that's not going to make the difference. The whole church just means uh, the, the public assembly that has come together of whoever's available. Right. Okay, very good. Well, I, I can... Yeah, that's good. I'm excited about that. Huh? And then the, the, uh, the, uh, the other thing about the absence of elders in the congregation, uh, the, the, way I, the way I start out with that is that elders must be, men must be qualified. If you don't have qualified men, then you don't have scriptural elders. Therefore, you can't have elders. It is better not to have elders by far than to have men who are not qualified. Because God will not hold you accountable for what you can't do. But he will hold you accountable for swapping what he did not authorize for for something that, that, that he desires. When it's beyond your power to do it scripturally, then to do it unscripturally is not going to please God. So when you don't have men that are qualified, you have to uh, you have to uh, make decisions somehow. 
Because for a church to have work, it has to have purpose. It has to have plans. And then my, my thinking about, okay, well then why would it be the men? And of course, uh, I don't know how much you all know, but Bobby and I know that there's been a whole lot of flack about business meetings, whether women should be in it or not, things like that. And my own feeling is that a lot of times we're just too artificial in what we're planning. Now, like, for example, if you had the elders, even if you had elders, and they call the whole church together to inform the, uh, the people. Now, sometimes the elders commonly get together with the men to tell the men all the stuff that's going on, and that's called a meeting with the men or a business meeting. Well, what if they call the whole church together for the purpose of explaining to them? Uh, not so that everybody could put the, uh, could say their stuff. Well, that'd be a business meeting too. It's the kind of meeting. And I believe that in the kind of meeting, uh, where, uh, the men are speaking up, they're saying this is what I think and so on. I don't really like the idea of a woman being in that kind of a meeting. Because, of the principle found in 1 Corinthians 14, which says, let her be in subjection as also saith the law. So that it's not only in the particular areas of addressing the assembly, but in any other area where she might be appeared to take uh, an undue leadership role. Because the role that is spoken of her throughout the Bible, even in the law, is of a submissive quiet role, not of a leadership role. So that would also have to do with leading the thing, which is not specifically addressed in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, so the idea of as also set the law, I know Genesis 3 talks about your desire will be subject to your husband, but I believe that there's even more uh, when Paul talks about as also set the law. Really, there's not much more specifically addressed in the law on the subject. The woman is not ever uh, suggested to be a priest, ever. But also, if you consider and compare the case of Deborah, the judge, who sat under the palm tree and all Israel came to her to be judged, and the case of Samuel, who went about in a circuit all about leading Israel, very distinct difference between them. And then in the day of Josiah, compare the role of Huldah the prophetess with the role of Jeremiah the prophet. Because in the case of Huldah, the messengers from Josiah went to her house. It's also interesting in the case of both of those, a distinct point is made on she is the wife of, you know, telling about whose wife she is, and in the case of Josiah, the messengers went to her house. In the case of Jeremiah, God says, go stand out at the temple and preach to all who come. So you see, there's a very definite uh, emphasis, a different in the emphasis of what role was. So therefore, I believe that in the, in the decisions that are made, I believe that, now like in a small group like you guys, uh, you all would be very foolish not to uh, sound the, the ladies out and get their input on some things, but to have a formal meeting where, and I don't know, Bobby, I don't know what you think about that, but sometimes it, it almost becomes a matter of when you have a bigger group, then it by nature is going to be more formal when you get to have a meeting. It has to be. And, and it has to be. And that would raise more questions to me about a woman's participation in that than, than it would uh, in a very small informal group such as you would have. Well, for example, and I'll, I'll just share with you how we handled the situation. Like we, every every November, October, November, uh, we would get together and we try to look at what our future program would have been and how, how well we covered that and anything we missed. And then we would ask what we want to do for next year depending on the needs of the situation. Mm -hmm. And what we've done is, is, is we've just asked the ladies, because most of them don't have representation. So if you want to put on a little piece of paper things that you think and you need, let us know, and then we'll put that in there and we'll decide where we're going to go with that. And that's the extent mm -hmm. we've we left that. Uh, and that's where we're, that, I, I feel much more comfortable. Mm -hmm. The ladies feel much, because they are, they, they're, they don't want to be in mm -hmm. that situation. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be in charge. They don't want to. 
Well, but if it is a totally negative thing that you know, I mean, just destructive, then uh, then I would just have to keep saying it, you no. Know. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a hard kind of thing. Oh. And, and sometimes you have to be patient. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I'll, I'll be patient. And if the brother or sister has a, has a concern, we'll, 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 we'll leave the patience of the other. But until then, I feel very strongly yeah. that the, the work must go on. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, the work is more important than the work. Well, the problem comes in, in a lot of times if, if in the church you begin to develop two groups that are almost equal in strength, then sometimes that's when, if it, if it becomes insoluble due to intractability on the part of one or the other or because you simply cannot surrender the principle, then there has to be a part of the ways. Now, when it's one person... This is one thing that I admire the elders here for. We've had some people come in and they begin to just really howl and complain to the elders about everything. They want this change, they want that change. Well, the elders have put in hours and hours and hours and hours doing this plan. They've seen it work. So what they do is they tell them, they say, we're glad to have you here, but if you simply cannot accept the way that we're doing things and everything like that, there's the door. Now, they're not open with it, but they do tell them that we are convinced that we have the best way for us to do this. Now, I'm not, I'm like, Bobby, if it's just a matter of judgment, that's different. That's right, that's right. Yeah. But if it's a change that would bring destruction, uh, and, and... Something that would take so long to establish. Yeah, yeah. It's gross <laughs> inefficiency yeah. in the way to do it. Then I would just tell them that, you know, we love to have you, but if you can't be happy here, then uh, we would just suggest that you find somewhere else. If they're not going to be able to, because, you know, you, you have to let them know that we're, we're not going, we just, principle, our convictions on this will not allow us to. But, you know, like Bobby also said, if you want to keep studying and trying to find consensus on the point, and hopefully they will, they will come around. And let's just hope, has that happened? Well, it's not happened. Okay. Well, let's hope it doesn't happen. No, that's very, very, very wow. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, some people will get into a small group and they want to run it. Every single thing is my way or no way. It just may be that there needs to be some teaching. Yeah. On attitude. Yeah. Yeah, but the but that's one of the leaders told me that told me back in the sixties about nineteen seventy-five. One time I was talking to them about a word of a two preachers ranged from a similar world. And uh, I, was, I was trying to deal with the words that I saw among some of the young people. And uh, Brother Lee told me, he said, he said, Bobby, you have to preach on it. That doesn't mean you have to stay on it week after week. Preach on it, then rise up, deal with some other things for a little while and come back. Because people need to hear it repeatedly. They don't need to hear it just once or twice. That's not the way it happens to change. It takes a while. The point that Bob makes uh, about the, uh, people having a better way, I think is misunderstood uh, often where a person who is taking the lead or has lost the, the leadership to be in position. They, they, they mistake leadership with control. And, and leadership is something that we all should have. And they develop. And we've got to be careful that we don't mis- misrepresent leadership with control. 